It is 1911 and American industry is booming. Women are rallying for equal rights to work and vote. The fabric of America is quickly changing. But deep in the South, terror rules the night in predominantly black neighborhoods. And it's not what you think. It's not the Klan or racially motivated terror. It is murder from within the community. To understand what is happening, we must go back at least two years. 1909 marks the beginning of a fearful time for many Negro families in southern Louisiana. This was the time of a murder rampage where families of five were targeted and slaughtered in the middle of the night. And the weapon was always the same, an axe. From 1911 to 1912, no less than a dozen black families were slaughtered by a remorseless axe murderer. However, the murderer never used the same axe twice because they would always use the axe of that which belonged to the family they would kill. And while the family was asleep, the murderer would locate and take the family axe, then break into the victim's home. Once inside, holy hell terror, frightening, and unbelievable horrors would take place as they would proceed to kill everyone in the house. Entire families were murdered all at once. The crimes would become connected to rumors of a deranged voodoo priestess and a cult called the Church of Sacrifice, which was said to butcher its victims as a part of their strange rites. One local newspaper called it the most brutal murder in the history of this section. But it was just one of the axe slings that would terrify parts of Louisiana and Texas in the early 1910s. At the start of the second decade of the 20th century, the murders blazed a path of terror through a cluster of towns along the Southern Pacific Railroad Line. And while sources argue about the first murder connected to the case, it may have been a woman named Edna Opelousas and her three children, who were killed in Rain, Louisiana, in November of 1909. The next killing took place in late January of 1911 when Walter Byers, his wife, their son, were hacked to death in Crowley, Louisiana. It was early one afternoon in late January that a police officer in West Crowley, Louisiana, received an urgent phone call. Neighbors feared something terrible had taken place at 605 Western Avenue. And indeed, when Officer Ballou arrived at the house, he found the home's three occupants, a man, a woman, and a small boy lying in bed with their skulls split open. It is said that the bed was drenched in blood and bloody footprints speckled the floor. The doors were locked indicating that the killer had come in through a window and murdered the family while they slept. There was a bucket of blood in one corner and at the head of the bed just above the bashed in body stood a bloodied axe. Bloodletting wasn't unusual in Crowley, especially in the colored side of town. 
However, this crime was different. The sleeping buyer's family had been brained with an axe. Besides being unimaginably cruel, the killer also appeared to be brazen. He or she hadn't even bothered to hide the murder weapon, as the blood-splattered axe was found dripping gore on the floor inside of the buyer's family home. Now, the police were somewhat used to crime happening in their largely poor part of town, but it was the brutality of these murders, brained with an axe, as one source put it, which surprised them the most. A little more than four weeks later, on February the 24th, the murderer struck again, killing four members of the Andrus family in Lafayette, Louisiana. Nina Martin's usual morning routine was interrupted. At approximately 7 a.m., Nina and her home became adjacent to a crime scene with her son when her son, Lesame Felix, burst into the kitchen and said that Nina's sister and brother-in-law had been murdered. Nina, obviously distraught, rushed over to her sister's home and found an abattoir. Alexandre Andras and his wife, Mimi, some sources write Mimi, M-I-M-I, along with their son, Hakim, and daughter, Agnes, were found murdered. Just like in the buyer's case, the murder weapon was an axe, and again it was found at the foot of the family's bed. Four days later, the local newspaper, The Advertiser, ran a short article quoting Deputy Coroner Clark, who asserted that the deceased had been, once again, brained with an axe. The article, including other shocking facts, some of which were surely provided by Sheriff Louis Lacosta. Namely, the newspaper noted that the Andrus family had been killed while they slept, probably sometime after midnight. Alexandra and Mimi had been moved after death, and with the killer putting them in a kneeling position beside the bed. It appeared as though that Alexandra and Mimi were praying. Sheriff Lacosta and his men suspected that the murderer of the Andres family was also the killer of the Byers family. By then, police began to suspect that their crimes were so similar. They may even have been the work of the same terrible monster. And better yet, Sheriff Lacosta had named their primary suspect, a recently escaped lunatic named Garcon Godfrey. A month later in San Antonio, Texas, Alfred and Elizabeth Cassaway were murdered in a similar fashion along with their three children. As similar as the murder of the Cassaway family seemed to the previous crimes, there were some major differences that caught investigators by surprise. First of all, the Cassaway family lived in San Antonio, Texas, although several sources say that they actually lived in Beaumont, Texas. Secondly, while all of the previous victims had been black, one of the victims in this case, Miss Cassaway, was white. This fact initially convinced detectives that a hatred of mixed-race couples was at the root of this awful crime. 
And though suspicion initially focused on several men and a few false leads, police focused on Raymond Baranabet, a local petty criminal and sharecropper from Lafayette who lived in the black part of town. Raymond reportedly had a violent temper, and it was said that he was unfaithful to his wife and abusive to his entire family. He moved his family to Lafayette, Louisiana in 1909 and lived in what they call a rundown part of town. Raymond was arrested based on suspicious from his mistress. All this after a fight, and she griped about him to a friend who suggested a possible connection to the murders. It was during his trial in October of 1911 that Raymond's children, Zephyrin and Clementine Barnabet, testified against their father. It was the teenage Clementine that told a graphic story of her father returning home one night with blood on his clothes as he threatened the family. Her brother Zephyrin confirmed the same story, adding that their father bragged that he had killed the whole damn Andrus family. Both children, both children, Zephyrin and Clementine, said that they feared for their life if their father was free. Let's face it, Raymond Barnabed was known to be a bad guy. A violent man who seemed perfectly capable of the axe murders of young children. But while Raymond sat in jail, another murder took place, this time on November 26 of 1911. Norbert Randall, his wife, and three children and a nephew were all murdered in Lafayette in the same heinous fashion, but with one horrific addition. While the rest of the family was attacked with an axe, Norbert was shot in the head before he too was brained with an axe. Like the others, eight-year-old Albert Cease, six-year-old Renee Randall, five-year-old Norbit Jr., and two-year-old Agnes had been beaten to death with the blunt side of an axe. As per usual, the murder weapon was found at the crime scene, although police discovered that this axe had been partially washed. It was clear a killer was still on the loose. The horrific slaying of the Randall family sent the citizens of Lafayette into a panic. Rumors circulated that the Randall children had been mutilated by their killer. And it was because of this that well over 150 people met at the Good Hope Baptist Church in Lafayette. And it was a meeting that reminded citizens to sleep with weapons nearby but it also demanded action from the police. Namely, the good, God-fearing people of Lafayette thought that the police should look at other members of the Barnabet family. The parish sheriff, Louis LaCosta, who was also already suspicious of Raymond's children, arrested them both. His suspicion stemmed in part from the fact that they had bad reputations around town. It was during Raymond's trial, their neighbors, the Stevens family, described them as filthy, shifty, and degenerate. But there was also another detail that concerned Lacoste. When police came to the Barnabet residence to arrest Raymond, blood from the Andrus murders had been discovered on Clementine's clothes. 
She had testified during her father's trial that that he had wiped the blood there. But the sheriff wasn't so sure. Indeed, when deputies arrested Clementine and searched the family's home, they found more damning evidence. As the Daily Pacune reported on November 28th of 1911, there was a complete suit of woman's clothing in her room, saturated with blood and covered with human brains. Not only that, but the latch on their door was covered in blood. Zephyrin provided an alibi for the night of the murders, but Clementine had none, and therefore she was taken to jail. But even then, the murders did not stop. In January 1912, three more families were murdered. All the victims were mutilated. Heads and limbs would be separated from the torso and strewn all over the house, reported the International News Service. In the third instance, when Felix Brassard and his wife and their three children were killed in Lake Charles, Louisiana, the killer or killers splayed the victims' hands apart with pieces of wood and left a handwritten message on the wall. Some sources say the message was written in blood, others in pencil. Either way, the letter spelled a spooky sentence. When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgotteth not the cry of the humble. It is a version of Psalms 9:12 in the King James Bible, and that message was signed by the human five. However, the King James Bible actually reads, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgotteth not the cry of the humble. The biblical quotation left behind at the Browsford crime scene was actually taken from the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin which had originally misquoted the verse. The number in the signature led police to think a band of murderers was at work. And it also lent the group a a nickname picked up by the press, the Human Five Gang. It is now known that Clementine was not the only one who was committing these crimes because the axe murderers continued even after she was thrown into jail. It is believed that Clementine was a part of a group called the Human Five, which was derived from the Church of Sacrifice. The newspapers had a field day, and they seized on the idea that the murders were connected to none other than a voodoo ritual. One of the first to take the angle, the El Paso Gazette published a story on the Browsford murders titled Voodoo's Horrors Break Out Again. The story suggested the crimes were connected to human sacrifice that took place as a part of a voodoo ritual. And they emphasized the idea of the number five as somehow having ritualistic relevance. Two months ago, six members of the Wexford family perished at the hands of the fanatics, but one was an infant that had been only born only the day before the tragedy and in all probability had not been taken into consideration when the plans for the human sacrifice were consummated, the reporter for the paper wrote. Now comes the Browser tragedy with its five victims, thus completing a series of sacrifices on uh, five separate families, each evidently intended to have involved five victims.
And while these numbers were not entirely accurate, the victim counts in a particular family typically range from four to six. The El Paso Gazette was one of many to run with the voodoo angle. And after their story hit newsstands, several local papers also printed the possibility that the murders were connected to voodoo. But you know, other facts of the browser crime scene were soon sensationalized by the regional media. The El Paso Herald of El Paso, Texas called the murders a sacrifice and noted that the youngest victims had been found with their fingers splayed and secured with pieces of paper and pens. And it was around the same time that church, uh, rumors were swirling that Clementine was the leader of some kind of a cult called the Church of Sacrifice, which was supposedly led by one Reverend King Harris, a Pentecostal revival preacher with a small congregation connected to the Christ-sanctified Holy Church. In fact, police would take Harris in for interrogation after rumors of religious involvement ran rampant. But the reverend had never heard of a church of sacrifice and was visibly shaken to think that his sermons could have possibly inspired a series of bloody axe murders. The church could be found all along the Southern Pacific Railroad, and according to Clementine's confession, Harris had encouraged his congregation to use lethal discipline against any wayward member. Clementine said that the Randalls were an example of such backsliding. On top of all of this, Clementine also told Louisiana, Louisiana authorities that she was a voodoo sorceress who enjoyed supernatural protection from punishment. Police soon discovered a common thread among some of the victims. They belonged to the Church of Sacrifice and Clementine was its leader. Just before April Fool's Day of 1912, Clementine started to talk. She told detectives about her downward spiral into a life of degradation and her introduction to voodoo. Before becoming the malignant religion known as voodoo, Vodun or Vodown was the name for the ancestral customs and beliefs of West Africa. With its talk about spiritual possession and examples of ecstatic worship appeared to be nothing less than devil worship to the first Europeans who encountered it. Then she described the slings. Disguised as a man, she hopped a train and committed her first axe murders in 1909 in the town of Rain, Louisiana, which was about 15 miles from Lafayette. With its talk about spiritual possession and examples of ecstatic worship appeared to be nothing less than devil worship. Again, that was all but apparent in 1909 and 1911. So it was not uncommon when strange killings occurred in New Orleans or the swamps of Florida. It was common to put the blame on voodoo. This was especially true when the victims and perpetrators were black. She claimed she had bought a voodoo charm meant to protect her while committing her crimes, and she said that she and her accomplices drew lots to see who would commit the murders. Initially, Clementine took credit for 20 killings, but she also added that she didn't act alone. 
that she had followers, including her father and brother, who would continue exterminating families in poor African-American neighborhoods. As for a motive, Clementine believed human sacrifice was the path to immortality. Victims were chosen at random, and children were snuffed out for their own good. We thought it was better to kill them than to leave orphans as they would suffer, she said. And indeed, it was difficult to keep Clementine's story straight. Considering that she had previously testified in court that her father was the dangerous man behind the murders, and yet they kept happening. She gave names for her accomplices, but when Sheriff Lacoste investigated them, they went nowhere. Now, several arrests were made, but the search for the rest of the Human Five gang was a dead end. The district attorney, Howard E. Bruner, theorized that some of these murders were copycat crimes. But he did believe that Clementine was a moral pervert, who was guilty of everything that she confessed to. Clementine had even admitted to caressing the corpses after she had killed them. The court records for Barnabette's trial were summarized and published by the Federal Writers Project in 1942. And their account makes plain that there was a great deal of public confusion regarding the details of the case at the time. For one thing, there probably never was a church of sacrifice as the papers had said. Reverend Harris had preached in Lafayette the night of the Randall murders, but was otherwise uninvolved. According to the Federal Writers Project, a state of confusion existed in the public mind regarding the sacrifice church, the existence of which had never been established, and Harris's the sanctified church, and the frequent arrest of the latter were made. It is possible that the words sanctify and sanctified were confused with sacrifice after the voodoo cult rumors began to spread, and perhaps that the misinformation was spread from there. Police predicted that there would be arrest of at least 50 of her followers, but they only pulled in a handful. There were no records of what happened to her father, brother, or other alleged accomplices including a voodoo doctor who sold protective charms and potions. We weren't afraid of being arrested, Clementine told the police, because I carried a voodoo which protected us from punishment. But the voodoo damage had already been done. The Lafayette population was willing enough to place the blame on a nebulous voodoo priestess committing murder while leading a sacrificial sect. And it didn't help that Clementine had named a voodoo priest who had given the invisibility charm to her. And he was Joseph Tubdeau. She said that he also gave her the ideas for the crimes. But he swore that he had never happened, that it never happened. And that far from being a voodoo priest, he simply engaged in a root-based medicine. Despite investigators' suspicions regarding Clementine's confession, the stories about her continued to circulate. Bruner officially filed charges against her on April the 14th of 1912. And while she sat in jail, she confessed to a total of 35 murders. 
but kept retelling her story with differing details that makes it hard to know the truth. Her defense attorneys claimed insanity and after psychiatric exams determined she was depraved but nonetheless sane, Clementine's trial started in October of 1912. She was found guilty and sentenced to a life sentence in prison at the age of 19. And due to the severity of her crimes, Clementine was sent to the infamous Angola State Penitentiary near the Louisiana State Capitol of Baton Rouge. While in prison, she would attempt to escape on July the 31st of 1913, but was also caught the same day. Now, despite her escape attempt, she was considered a model prisoner. For whatever reason, this escape attempt was forgotten. And in 1918, Clementine was given the job of cane cutter. This meant that Clementine was allowed to work outside with minimal observation. At least for Clementine, there may have been some truth to the notion that she didn't have to worry about anything because she carried the voodoo. Five years later, on Saturday, August the 28th of 19 and 23, Clementine Barnabed was allowed to leave Angola due to years of good behavior. The axe woman was free. She didn't, however, serve very long. According to one brief report about the prison, Clementine received a procedure that was said to have restored her to normal condition and which allowed her to be released on good behavior after only serving 10 years. Strangely enough, there was more than one set of axe murders terrorizing Louisiana around the same time. Nearby, the murders of the infamous Axeman of New Orleans tormented locals in the late 1910s. You know, the killings have never been solved. And several decades earlier, a killer sometimes called the Servant Girl Annihilator committed several axe murders in the 1880s Austin, Texas area. Those crimes have also never been solved. Experts are not really sure if all those murders are connected. Now, after Clementine's release, she vanished. And for 80 years, no one heard any more about her. Now, oddly enough, around 2002, a story popped up on the internet that hinted about her life after prison. An online presence called Voodoo Gal 11 wrote that in the 1980s, she discovered that her great-grandmother knew a lot about the murder rampage and that pictures of her as a young woman bore a striking resemblance to newspaper photos of Clementine. According to the internet user, she visited her 103-year-old great-grandmother in 1985. It was during that visit the pair were joined by another woman who told them all a story about a forgotten string of voodoo murders. That same year after the mysterious storyteller died, Voodoo Gal 11 and other attendees at the funeral noticed that a youthful picture of the woman matched newspaper photographs of serial killer Clementine Barnabet. If it's true 
It means the woman who cut so many lives short had the gift of exceptional longevity. Dying at the age of 104. Thank you for listening to the Deuce Conrad Show on Spotify Podcast. In case you didn't know, you can also hear this podcast on Google Podcast and Apple Podcast and most podcast platforms across the web. For more information about tonight's show, you can also visit www.deuceconradshow.com. Visit show notes for more details.